this is Adam Hall and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. Hi, my name is Maestro and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. Hi, this is Alex Dunn and you're listening to the Half Court Press podcast. Hi, my name is Julie Finney Ibsen and you are listening to the Half Court Press podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the fourth season of the Half Court Press podcast. In this series, View from the Touchline, we talk to coaches from different backgrounds about their philosophies on sport, the techniques used when teaching, and their approach to their job. In our second episode, we take a look at disability sport for the first time. Katie Hall tells us about her role in para badminton. The Half Court Press has partnered up with Right Performance to bring our listeners a competition for hockey equipment. If you share this podcast three times on social media before May 31st, then you will be entered into a prize draw to win either a handguard or a pair of shin pads. You can find the Half Court Press on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Clubbing for a new hockey stick, no one to pay over the odds for a top of the range stick. After playing hockey for years, we've decided we'd try and do just that. We now have our own stick at a price that we think is competitive and have a range of three 100% carbon sticks. If you want to see more, go to our website at rightperformance.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Half Court Press podcast, Coaching Specials. Uh, I'm sat here with Katie Hall, who is a power badminton coach, uh, as well as being the sister of our, um, our guest in our previous series, Adam Hall. Hello, Katie. Hi, Hayden. Um, well, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, could you give us a little bit, bit of background about where you're from, who you are? Yeah, not a problem. Um, so I am, I'm from, obviously, Scotland, from a little village uh, called Mochlin. Um, I currently live in London at the moment. Um, I work for uh, for Enable, which is a company in, in Wandsworth, and I'm their kind of disability sport development officer down there as well, and so I'm kind of heavily involved in disability sport in general, um, not just uh, with not just power badminton. Um, I'm 29, and I've been there for about a year and a half now in London. So majority of the time, I've been up here in, in Scotland and in Glasgow um, most most of my life. What's the uh, name of the company? Enable Leisure and Culture. Oh, nice. So we work in Wandsworth Borough, um, just in a Battersea area. Well, because all the best sports coaches are from London, you know. It's, uh... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm. Living in London, but I'm really, you know, from Glasgow, from Scotland. So all the best sports coaches from a uh, from Scotland will say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So in terms of uh, your playing career in badminton, did you did you play much growing up? I mean, it sounds like you're from quite a sporty family. Yeah. yeah. So, um, like I say, we're from a pretty small village, so we just we go up to the local games hall and, and play most of the sports. To be honest, so we did like short tennis. We did. Um, badminton, tennis, there was always like about to castle and stuff like that in there as well. So, um, yeah, I started playing when I was about six years old, um, so that was about 23 years ago, um, just recreationally and for fun at the, the club with my sister. And then Adam obviously started playing as well, and we all found that we were 
we came from a very talented few years in Auckland. We had some really good players come out of Auckland. Um, and then as I kind of grew up, maybe about 13 years old, I started just focusing solely on badminton. So I used to do like dance and badminton, short tennis, loads of different sports. Um, then at 13, I started just kind of focusing on badminton solely. Um, <coughs> and I to, started training, went up to school sport um, for three years, trained pretty much full time for school for school kids. And um, we did two hours a day at school and then a couple hours after school as well. Played um, for Scotland as a junior and um, right up to junior Europeans. Um, uh, yeah, and then after that went to went to university as so kind of just started playing University of Hamilton, just having a bit of fun and started coaching about 16, 16 years old. Um, started coaching just volunteering and then kind of from there just took it a bit more professionally, got all my coaching degrees and things. So, so yeah, but um, I've been playing for about 23 years in total. <laughs> about 16 of those have been like properly, properly playing. I mean, in terms of, I mean, you saying that you did a bit of dance, did a, did a few other activities growing up. Um, yeah. How important do you think uh, multi sports, multi activity training is in terms of uh, developing a player? Yeah, I think it's um, it's extremely important because each um, each different individual sport will offer something different to your to your main sport. So, for example, dance was. Um, was really good when I was younger to help with things like flexibility and strength, which translates to badminton. Badminton is one of those sports that you need to have endurance, strength, flexibility, um, everything, you know, any kind of fitness you need, you need it for badminton because it just covers so much. Um, so yes, it's, it's really important, especially when you're young, to do lots of different sports. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I'd advise doing as much as you can and trying everything out and if you get good at one thing then you can focus a bit more on that but when you're young it's really important when would when would you start to focus um i mean for for me it was around about kind of 13 13 years old about kind of teenage years i think it's really important especially as you're developing your body develops that you um don't put too much pressure on it as you're kind of growing we see a lot of athletes that get um they get injured quite young or have really bad problems because they've done lots of kind of strength work when they shouldn't be doing it um, and, and different kind of activities that are kind of detrimental to their, their main sport so I think kind of as as you start kind of developing you know go through puberty you should start maybe focusing more on more on one sport and maybe just solely on that sport but up to that age you should be you should be doing everything I think or trying everything at least. You said that you did a bit of um, was it, was it sports education. Did you, did you have much in terms of qualifications and stuff like this? Yes, um, I've like my level level two badminton award um, was working up to, to level three a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, so done that and also kind of other formal informal kind of qualifications. We had like sports leaders, sports coaching at school. Um, but in terms of badminton specific, uh, UKCC level two, um, and then I've done. Years ago, uh, we did the kind of disability module for badminton. Um, it was just kind of being tested, so that's kind of the qualifications that have badminton specific. Okay. Yeah, the UKCC stuff seems to seems to sort of cover a lot of different sports. I mean, I've got one in hockey. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um it's the main main body for um for sports coaching at the moment. That's um there's loads of different good activity, uh, good kind of resources for education out there. There's the new Simspa Academy, which um, is a charter institute for sport and physical activity. 
um, which can be accessed and you know there's loads of really good things out there that you can look for for qualifications if you're not looking for sports specific or if you are looking for sports specific UK coaching is a really good website for that kind of stuff as well. Okay so in terms of your transition from playing to coaching when did that start to happen? Um, so around about 16 years old I started um, kind of coaching at our uh, local satellite club so the Glasgow Satellite Squad and Ayrshire Satellite Squad um, kind of helping out uh, and then about maybe when I was about 18, 19 um, I'd finished all my qualifications by the age I was 18 so I'd done up to UKCC level 2 um, started coaching more formally for the satellite clubs um, and just doing a bit of coaching, like individual coaching for youngsters. Um, my, in terms of kind of transitioning into power badminton as well, that kind of happened quite naturally through one of my coaches who was coaching me individually. So he uh, worked for West, for um, Ayrshire Council and for Badminton Scotland and then subsequently for Scottish Disability Sport. Um, one of the most decorated badminton players in, in Scotland, uh, Russell Hogg, whose name was, he unfortunately passed away a few years mm-hmm. back um, with cancer. Um, but he was a massive influence to me and to, to many others in Scotland. Um, and when it comes to kind of disability sport, he basically just got me involved with the Scottish Four Nations, which is a um, badminton or disability badminton tournament that gets played every year. Scotland hosts one, England, Ireland, Wales. Um, and just volunteering there, doing a bit of uh, scoring, helping out, um, and then from that got taken in to help out with the Scottish National Power Badminton squad. Um, we used to meet four times a year, um, and just got more involved with them that way, and worked with Russell, um, who I've mentioned, and a guy called Lyndon Williams, who is really a driving force for, for disability sport in, in the UK, and for disability badminton in the UK um, specifically, so got involved with, with him and transitioned more into power from from there. Yeah, I've I've come across a few different players and coaches, and mm. in, in in terms of it, it seems to be very much opportunity driven of uh, with a lot of top players. If they don't realise they can do something until you get the chance to do it, is that is that similar to what you're doing? Yeah, similar. Um, so I think I've always termed it like terms like coaching and stuff. Um, I've always loved like teaching and coaching and things and actually did my degree in primary teaching um, at university only to, to bachelor level not to honours um, but I always loved that and having like the influences from especially Russell in, in London to really drive me into to coaching and drive me into power and coaching um, it's really important like I think it's having those opportunities and those influences kind of you know I've been really lucky um, for sure to have those people in my life to help um, push those things forward. You, you, you started out quite young. I mean, 16 is uh, is is brilliantly young to start coaching. Did did you have ambitions towards this from a young age? Or? Um, I mean, my ambitions when I was young was to, you know, play Commonwealth games, get to Olympics and things. Um, but then, kind of as I got a little bit older, um, kind of realised those might not those might not happen. We, especially for my age, we had a um, really strong Scottish uh, team for girls anyway, like, um, and kind of getting towards the age of about 18, realising that, you know, I might not get this chance to, to push forward in my career um, as a player, I started looking at opportunities for coaching. Um, just We had a really strong squad, so for me, I wasn't at that level, so I wouldn't be um, 
you know, I wouldn't be able to really transition, I don't think, into, into the senior squad. Um, so, yeah, I just started looking at other opportunities and coaching was a natural one because I just like other people personally being around people or like helping people. So, um, yeah, it became like a natural progression for me at that kind of age, I think. And what's the uh, what are the differences? What are the differences between coaching and playing? Do you think? Do 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 you still get the same buzz? Do you, do you still get the same enjoyment? Yeah. yeah, I feel like I get I get more of a buzz from coaching now. Um, maybe not as so much when I first started. I was you know really I loved playing and loved competing. And we're a very I don't know if Adam had said, but we're we're a very competitive family. All of us, even board games, you know, it can be a disaster. Quizzes, everything. So we're very competitive. But like um, as a player. I really enjoyed kind of that side of it and then transitioning to coach I got the thrill of going to tournaments and watching your players succeed and watching your players put into practice what you've been what you've been working on and that's that's a real it's a different kind of buzz um but I think you know in the last especially the last maybe six seven years I feel like coaching has been so much more rewarding than um than my playing career was um I mean, I, I love playing and you know everything, but it's, it's nice to watch players kind of progress and, and get better, and that's that's a different kind of thrill. I mean, that that competitive mindset seems to be seems to be essential for mm. top athletes, you know, elite level athletes. Um, I remember listening to, listening to uh, an interview with Michael Owen, the former England uh, football player. He's saying yeah. growing up, and his kids are the same, and he would like he seems to encourage it that. Even playing Monopoly or Tiddlywinks, if these kids don't yeah. win, they they toss the board up, storm up to the room. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so things like that. How competitive can you get as a coach? Do you feel is is that an important oh. part of of, of yeah. teaching? Yeah, I think um, you still you get very competitive, but not to to the point. But you know, like as a player on court, you can. Um, like show loads of emotion and things, and then as, as a coach, you you do you want your players to win. Do you know you want your players to do to do their best? Um, might not always come up against easy opponents, but you, you know you do feel that kind of competitive side for them. And if you're not competitive, and when you go on um, to for badminton, you get opportunities at eleven and at the end of the set to go on and coach your player and tell them what you know, give them some a couple of hints or tips, things that they should be looking out for, things that they should be trying in the game and if you're not competitive then you're going to be a bit more passive about those kind of you may be a bit more passive about those uh, opportunities to coach your player um, instead of you know going in and being really competitive and being like this is what this is what you need to do this is how you're going to beat this guy or this is how you're going to get more points um, so yeah I think it's important to still have that competitive edge as a, as a coach if not you I don't think you could bring your you know your A game to your players um, especially in competitions. Okay, you know, I've I've done a bit of work as a as a coach myself in a different sport in different sports to uh, you're working in, and it's um, there's always there's always a conversation within coaching clinics, coaching courses, you know, generally within the industry that I, you know, the, the sports that I work in of of when do you make the, the the distinction, and at what age level do you start coaching performance over results or results over performance. Mm. When when does that kick in? Do you think? Um, I think it it depends on it depends on the level. I think for sure it's maybe not an age thing. I think it's the level. Um, but then when you're when you're working with young young athletes, even if they're the top very top standards, you still need to take that kind of performance over result. Um, 
element with young pe- with young people because um, obviously that's that time where one bad experience with a coach or one bad tournament could be them you know the difference between them continuing in the sport and them dropping out but I think from like a power badminton level or for disability sport when you're working like I don't we don't work with an age group so for power badminton you could be 13 playing against a 33 year old on court international events and because we don't have the depth and numbers to really have that break between junior and senior um so in terms of in terms of age I think you know top level juniors you should be looking at results but you should also have the emphasis on performance Um, and then as you if you know if you walk in the tournament um you should have some results based kind of thinking um and then for for power badminton as well it's a lot of the times we look at who your who your opponent is so if i've got an athlete who's first international um they might be they might be 40 years old but it's their first international mm-hmm. so they're going in playing against number one seed we need to look at the performance rather than the result there because they're not going to win it's their first tournament we know that they know that but we, so then we look at the, the performance rather than the result, um, if that makes sense. So yeah, for me, it's not an age group, it's a, it's a level, I think. So I mean, I've, I've heard this described as um, training age. Mm. You know, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not your biological age, it's, it's, it's yeah, your level exactly. of experience. Exactly, yeah. Um, it completely depends on the level that you're working with and the level that you're coaching, what you should be focusing on, I think. Okay, so in terms of... Um, practicalities of coaching are there differences between coaching uh mainstream athletes and power badminton athletes yeah um yes yeah, so the main some some of the main kind of differences obviously you're working with athletes who have physical or learning disabilities so you need to take into consideration what their abilities are um and especially when it when you're looking at power badminton um as versus badminton badminton there's five there's five different events you've got men's women's singles men's women's doubles mixed doubles for um para badminton you have six cla- six classifications and within that you still have your five events so you could have two athletes that are in a wheelchair one so we have um sorry just give that background the classifications for badminton you've got wheelchair one wheelchair two so wheelchair one is um people with a, a higher impairment than wheelchair two um, SL3, which is people with higher impairment than SL4. So SL3 play on a half court, stand and, stand and lower three, you play in a half court, stand and lower four, play in a full court, stand and upper five, play in a full court, and then SH6, which is um, short stature six, they play on a full court as well. So each individual athlete for Parabampton will have to move slightly differently. Um, I think movement's a big thing. So when you look at your kind of mainstream way of teaching uh, kids adults how to move through the badminton court um, you're going to do that differently for the majority of your um, athletes in power badminton so movements are a big thing you need to consider and as you know if, if I do a running if I run some athletes might not be able to to run do that same running step so then we need to consider how we kind of make that movement and things kind of easier and better for them um, and then of course working with someone in a wheelchair you need to then know how to the rules of wheelchair badminton and then how to actually move the wheelchair and how to get the best from from that athlete as well so it's but on the whole the coaching principles are very are very much the same as coaching it sounds Um, it sounds like there's a lot of um anatomy and physiology biomechanics involved here um a lot of um what do you call it even things like 
mathematical tra trajectories and parabolic curves come into effect, I suppose, doesn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, not. I mean, it's not always at the forefront of my mind because I don't have any kind of degree or knowledge in, in, in those things, and um, my maths is certainly not the best. But um, you do. There's a lot of considerations that you need to take into, you know, when you're working with people who have uh, physical physical impairments. Um, they might have a prosthetic. So, which leg is the prosthetic on? Um, can they lunge on the leg that the prosthetic is on? How do you adapt that movement? So there's a lot of um, working with the athletes to get the best adaptations for their movement. Um, and then, obviously, the tactical side of that can change as well, depending on what size of court you're playing on. And the funny thing about like when you're working with some athletes and you're doing like tactical play if you're in a competition you can actually use your opponent's disability to your advantage like if you if you see that they're you know they've, they've got um a weakness in the, the left hand side then you know to target more shots into into that side or into that kind of area so you can you can use which is it sounds a bit harsh you know to actually to be exploiting someone's um disability but when it comes to competitive sport, it, it can be used as a tactical tactical element. So there's like things like that are, are completely different to, to what you'd have in a, in a mainstream able-bodied game. I mean, I mean, even in mainstream mainstream sports, people go, okay, that guy's a bit slow, or that guy's, mm, a, you know, exactly. that guy's a bit, yeah. you know, a bit short, but uh, or that guy's a bit longer. So therefore, yeah. you know, whatever, you, you do this, that, and the other. I remember, I think it was the Australian comic who does the last leg. Is it Adam Hills? Yeah. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. he does. Uh, he yeah. does. He does disability rugby league, and he was mm -hmm. saying one of his teammates. He can only play on one particular wing because when he's catching the ball, his disability is that he's, he doesn't have a hand, so yeah. he, he can only play on one wing. So it makes it easier for him to actually catch the ball. Um, yeah. Little adaptations like that is uh, important, perhaps. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You need to look at your athlete and what their capabilities are and. Um, and then when you're in competitive, when you're in competitions, then you can, you know, look at your opponent and you can point out those weaknesses and they're sometimes um, a lot easier to spot than what they might be in a mainstream game. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's it, in terms of like coaching principles, though, like being considerate of athletes and building session plans and all that is, is the same to coaching mainstream. Um, it's just that you need to work with athletes and be a bit more creative and how much of a of a learning curve was there for you? Did you have to make any adaptations early on, early on? Any any funny stories about your early days and coaching power sports? Um, I'm trying to make funny stories. Um, yeah, I think it was it was so basically I got um, so I coached the Scottish national disability badminton team till till I moved to London. And I started out in that, obviously, like I say, went to a couple of national squads and helped out there and just kind of a stroke of luck went into um, Bampton Scotland office one day and they said, look, we need a coach to go to European um, championships with the disability Bampton team. Do you, do, you like, do you fancy it? You've been working with them for the last you know, couple of years. And of course, I snapped that up straight away and said, yeah, of course, I'd love to. So my first tournament, we, um, you know, we... When a, one of the athletes was kind of number number one, number two in the world at the time, and he was looking to get you know his first European gold medal, and he got to the final, and I was so nervous. I can't even. It's the most nervous I've ever been. More nervous than I've ever played, which 
Um, I mean, at the end of the game, I was on the court shaking as he was playing, and he won. He got the gold medal, and I, I cried like that's all. Oh, you know, I like started crying because he'd won, and I was just like, I can't believe this is amazing. Um, and just things like that, like it's been it's been really fun working with like the group of athletes and getting to, to travel with them and see them get better. And um, I think one of the, the best things is seeing how the sport's grown. So now we're a Paralympic sport to actually see the sport as a whole it used to be quite. Um, Paralympics has always been quite kind of family. Everyone knows each other. Everyone's friends. Very competitive on court. Don't get me wrong. Everyone wants to win, but off court it was quite um, you know, kind of more family like fun like you know and now it's very much professional and um everyone's like so focused on getting to Paralympics of course so it's kind of a little bit less like that now um but it's nice to see the sport grow into a professional competitive sport than whereas before it was come on play Paralympics so it's been um it's been nice to see that so what, sure. what's the process of getting a sport I mean I'm, I'm 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 sure that you were in the front line of the negotiations with the uh with the IOC, but it was how do you, how does one get the sport into into Paralympic um, uh, considerations? Was, yeah, so it was. Um, I mean, for me, I, I wasn't I wasn't at the forefront. <laughs> I was just just happy to, to to get to the tournaments and to work with the athletes. But um, yeah, so it, it's, it was a long process. I think they applied a couple of times, and the feedback that the IPC came back with was that there was too many. Um, classifications, too many events. So, if we look back to, to you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, there were, now we have six classifications. Before there were, I think, 11 classifications, okay. and each one is five, with there was 55 events um, within each one, which. It's a lot of athletes. Un- yeah, a lot of athletes, and, and just unmanageable, really. So, they had to change kind of the approach and change the rules slightly. So, we merged a few. Um, Emerged so SH6, for example, there used to be three different levels of short stature badminton, and now there's only one. Um, so it was just trying to cut cut things out and seeing where they could still keep the sport really competitive and even, but also ensure that you know they didn't have 55 different events. Because I think that was the feedback that came back from IPC was that you know it was just too big. Um, whereas now they've got a really good structure, and just having the six classifications really makes it a lot easier and a lot cleaner to. Um, so, just the, kind of pack out the events and things. So, so the IPC is that the International Paralympic Committee. Yeah. Which is yeah, which yeah. I'd imagine is the parallel committee to the International Olympic I, Committee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. All right, all right, yeah. Cool. Um, I know. I know in my sport hockey. I mean, I know. I think it's, it does sound like the IOC are wanting to cut down team sports. Mm. Uh, I know in hockey it's eleven a side. which is my sport. It's eleven a side. And there's chat about going to five aside, which nobody particularly wants. Oh, but wow. but it's uh, nobody particularly wants five aside. But it's people at the IOC going, well, it's a lot of money, and it runs for two weeks, and it's only two medals, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think they're looking at greater cut costs for the for the host, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, yeah. Is that? It sounds like it sounds like that's a similar consideration for for your sport. Yeah, um, I think it was it was more so badminton both Olympics, and I'm assuming will be the same for Paralympics runs um, over the two weeks. The full the full length of the, the Olympic um, kind of period it runs runs the whole time, and um, because there's so many like events, then it goes over. You play like um, in pools, then you go into knockout stages. So it does let in players. They play one match a day, and it'll be the same for 
the Paralympics, um, especially so we out of the I think there's twenty twenty six now kind of like um twenty six events have been you know break down into men's, women's, singles, etc. Et so fourteen of them are in the Paralympics, so it's going to be um quite busy. I think and um they'll reassess. That. We didn't think we'd get fourteen events. We thought we'd get five, so let's get fourteen women and um hopefully it kind of shows that it can work and we can get either more events and more athletes or you know, same events. So so I was covering the Scottish Open in Glasgow, which is, which is where I met Adam. Um, okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, uh, I I think in my notes when I was school, I described him and and Alex Dunn as a, a swarm of bees around the net in, in yeah. a match once. Um, but one thing that really struck me was like having four games going on at the same time. People mm-hmm. coming on, you know, some matches finishing before the others, some lasting a bit longer. And it, it, yeah. it, it it's... To to a badminton novice, it seemed like chaos, but there's some, obviously there's some sort of organisation there. Yeah, yeah, and especially you. I mean, at the time you'd have been there would have been the, the earlier stages. So and as the tournament, um, so the likes of Scottish Open is a knockout straight away, basically. So you have draws of thirty two, so you have thirty two entries per men's singles, women's singles, mm. men's singles, women's singles, mixed doubles, um, and you have some athletes that will play over too. But, you know, you're over over 100 odd athletes there um, competing, so that's why the tournaments need to last so many days because they play maybe one or two matches a day, and then as you get to the, the finals day, it would be one match on court, one court, one match kind of thing, and um, they just run after the other. But for badminton, you need to have, um, you know, like a few courts running at the start, or else you would never get to a tournament. Um, if you only had the one court, it would probably take about two weeks to get through it all. Um, but yeah, par like par bands we need we use different courts for wheelchairs than we do standing. So like the Paralympics, we need to have a hall that has like um matted courts for standing players and wooden or plastic courts for um for wheelchair kind of thing. So it's it might look a bit chaotic, but if you've been in it for years, it's just normal. <laughs> um, so in terms of uh, practicalities of coaching, what makes a good power power badminton coach? I think um, a couple of things that, I mean, it's, it's not really different from, you know, being a good coach is being, having empathy and being able to, to plan and really look after your athletes, um, especially when it comes to parabamps and things you need to really consider, you know, their abilities and, you know, how they can move and kind of they're more likely to get injured or to have um, medical issues that you need to take into consideration. But on the whole, you know, empathy, creativity, um planning and organisational skills, being able to, you know, give feedback as well. Um and just generally your general coaching principles apply across both. If if you don't put your athletes at the forefront as a able bodied coach, then you're you're not gonna get the best out of your athletes. It's the same in Parabamas and if you don't put the kind of needs of your athletes at the forefront then in no considering their goals and, you know, showing them how to achieve that and helping them achieve that, then you're not you know, you're not doing your job as a coach and I think that translates across mainstream um, and parabams and um, with I think anything can add it would be just a little bit more creativity, especially when you're trying to work out how to help an athlete do a certain movement or they can't do that the same movement that you want them to do, so you have to be creative with them and work out what's gonna be best for them. Mm. Thinking on your feet sometimes. Is that sorry? Thinking on your feet sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or in your wheelchair, depending on 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Just being able to like, you know, speak to the athlete, and that's really important. Is that you don't just say this is how it's done, um, this is how I want to do it, do it kind of thing, which um, you can't really do in para badminton. You can say this is what I would like you to do. Let's give it a try. If it works, great. We'll work on it. We'll make sure that you're the best you can be at that. If it doesn't work, you know, so like a different way of approaching that and um, seeing if it's you know if it's something that can work eventually with more training or if it's just something that physically they aren't capable of doing and how how do you kind of adapt really how do you adapt to, to that? I was in one of our previous series. We um, I was chatting to uh, a basketball coach, and he was saying when he's coaching his team, it's it's it's, it's getting them to think for themselves. It's getting them to make yeah. their own decisions on the pitch, and actually, he he, he described when um, in a mat, you know, he first started it was this is what I want you to do, and these days it's he was talking about in a cup final when, he, when his team came up to him and says, look, coach, I actually you know I changed my mind about this. Let's do it. Let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. And, the, and the woman turned around to him and says, yeah, we've already spoken about it. Yeah, we, that's exactly what we're going to do. And he went, okay, yeah, yeah fine. Yeah, I think that's really important that, you know, you're, especially when you get up to performance level, that your athletes have a voice and that they can, um, that, you know, they're not, they shouldn't at that point be relying on you to tell you, you know, like a lot of the athletes, I'm like, well, you know the technique, you know how to hit these shots, so I don't need to teach you that, I'm here to help you with that into best, best practice, excuse me, in the game. Um, and I think, especially with, when you're working with, you know, any athletes, you, you need to listen to them. If not, then, it, you know, it's not going to, they're going to resent you for it. They're, you know, going to feel like they're not being heard. And then say you need to have a good relationship with them and giving them a voice and helping them help themselves um, is, is really important. When, when, does, when does a coach have the biggest impact? Is it on match day or is it during training? you're working with I think and how in their mood I think in, in training you can push them and you can help them and then on um, you can help them you know by setting up practices by teaching them the technique so again it depends what, depends what level you're working with I think as to when you're you're most um, most needed uh, on court I know for certain certainly like some of the athletes that I've worked with um, I've felt a bigger impact on them on court them during a competition um, with being able to help them get you know past that finish line and winning matches than say I do on a Sunday when we're training when, when I'm setting up practices for them practices that you know they could set up with someone else so they you know if we're just doing a we're doing like a tough training day anything that I give them they can then take and do with someone else you know that way it's just about going through those kind of motions if I'm not teaching them something new um, <clears throat> but on a on a match day, I feel like I can be more of a difference with some athletes. Some athletes don't respond very well to coaching or they don't listen or um, they find it kind of better at off-court after match rather than like during during a game to speak to you because um, they're either so focused or maybe their mind's not there and they've had a bad sleep. Um, yeah, I think it depends what we're working with. Again, if you're working with junior athletes that have just picked up a racket, you're going to be the biggest difference to them because you're going to teach them the technique, you're going to teach them how to move, and then and as they get better, they can start progressing and, and things. But it depends. It depends what, I, what level I think you're working with again. Okay, so in terms of your coaching philosophies, um, 
how do you like to how do you like to work? How would you, how would you describe your style of coaching? Um, I think um, I work with with athletes. I think um, hopefully they say the same. Um, I'm very much I'm kind of fairly laid back, and that I want them to have fun and enjoy what they're doing. Because at the end of the day, if you don't enjoy it, then you know you're not going to get the best out of your athletes. And they are, you know, they, they enjoy it. They don't enjoy it anymore, and it's maybe time for them to change. So I want to for me come in session I want to make sure it's fun but I also want to make sure that it's um it's appropriate for what you're trying to teach them we're not just going and playing games the entire time it's, it's fun to an extent um, and then when you really need to you know crack the whip and be like right, we need to work hard here let's go let's you know encourage them um, maybe equally on, on that side of things as well um but generally I want to make sure that the athletes enjoy it um, and that it's that they fit that they understand the meaning towards it so if I put them through a, a really tough session that I'm not just they know that I'm doing it for a reason they know that we're going through the tough sessions now so that we can peak at a certain point for tournaments um, as opposed to you know just being like right I'm gonna put you through a high intensity day you know I don't care how you're feeling or whatever we're just gonna do it um, whereas an athlete comes and they're not feeling great then you know I'll adapt I'll change I'll tailor it to how they're, to how they're feeling and um yeah, I like to think I'm a bit chill, but also um, very much there to support the athletes and to make sure that I get the best out of them. So when, I, when it does need to be a tough session and I do you know, need to plan quite tough for them, then I can get the best out of them. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of um, what's good about power badminton, I mean, what, what, what are the best qualities of power badminton? What makes what makes your sport special? It's just it's. I mean, nothing. You look at even body badminton. It's one of the most incredible sports I think because you need to be um, physically an all rounder. Um, and I think it's the same for for para badminton. And when you look at some of the athletes that you know, some of the um, disabilities and impairments that they have, and you see what their capabilities are, it's just it's it's amazing. They don't. Nothing really adapted from able-bodied, with the exception of the court size. So, for example, Dan and Laura Thierry in wheelchairs play on a half court because it's just it's, it's, it makes the game more exciting because like, the games will last longer. They can play to their full potential, whereas they can they might not be able to cover a full court, so the game's not going to be as good. Um, but nothing changes. The net height's the same. The shuttle's the same. But there's not too much adaptations from able-bodied to mainstream in terms of like on court. I think that's what's incredible about it is that there's not there's no adaptations really. Everything's they play on the same speed of shuttles, same same height and net, and we've got short stature players playing the same height and net. That just makes the, the game <clears throat> a little bit more exciting, you know, because you're not changing for them. You're keeping everything the same. Um, it's fast. It's it's powerful. The athletes, some of the some of their stories are incredible and. Just to watch it, I mean, I'm really excited for Paralympics because I think the numbers of the number of people playing Paralympics and like, when I see it on court, I think the, the number will, will just will skyrocket after it. Um, it's, it's just incredible. Katie, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Thank you very much. This has been a Half Court Press production by Teo McLeod.